0: We are going to start a new series tonight um, called Freedom in Christ. If you're very astute or you've been around Orangefield for a while, you might remember the strobe light no. you, you might remember that um, Freedom in Christ is actually a course that you can do. And we, we could run it as a course. We could run it and show a DVD and Gary and I put our feet up and just relax and drink coffee. But we thought it might be a bit more fun if we took the talks on the DVD and kind of tailored them and personalised them for Orangefield a bit more. So some of the material you're going to hear is going to be coming from the DVDs. It's not plagiarised, but it's, we need to acknowledge that at the very start of this, that it's not all our own work, um, but it's certainly uh, reproduced and tailorized for us as a congregation. And I'll chat more about what that looks like later on. If you've got a Bible tonight with you or on your phone you might want to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. And I want to read a very familiar story. And um, We're going to be in lots of bits of the Bible tonight, but for the purposes of um, something to read, we're going to be landing tonight's talk in this parable. And so I want to read it now. So Luke, chapter 15, from verse 11. Listen now for the word of God. Jesus continued. There was a a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off to a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out um, to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. When he came home, or when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. This part, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His dad completely ignored him the father said to his servant, not to the son, his father said to the servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother's come home, he replied. And your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound.
1: The older brother
0: became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look! All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never give me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This part. My son the father said. You're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Amen. Let's pray and then we're going to talk and share some. Jesus, thank you that you didn't simply come to make bad things good, but you came to make dead things alive. Jesus, thank you that you have the power to transform us from children of darkness into children of light. Jesus, thank you that by your work on the cross that we have been singing about and praying about, that you have the power to bring us from, from outside into your family and call us sons and call us daughters with a promise in your word and a promise in your blood that is unshakable and unbreakable. Tonight as we come, may your word shape our minds, may your spirit take those words and shape our hearts And may we leave this place renewed and refreshed and restored. So speak, Lord, we pray, to every single person here. And as we pray for ourselves, we pray for other churches here in East Belfast, that you will move mightily amongst their people as they gather. And we pray especially for Nock, who are worshiping right now, God, won't you come by your spirit and transform lives by your grace in that place tonight? In Jesus' name, the people of God said, Amen, Amen. May have shared this with you before. You know you're getting old as a minister when you start with that sentence, but forgive me if I have. I still remember the first time I held my oldest daughter, Karis. Lara um, had had given birth, and being a 21st century dad, I'd been right there alongside her, cheering her on, saying all kinds of helpful things. You with me? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, Like one, two, three, push. We'll not get into it right now. Um, Bit of a disaster, really, but um, yeah, I'm not a midwife. A lot of respect for midwives. But Karis was born in the wee hours of the morning, and Lara, who was an absolute superstar and totally exhausted, went off to get a shower, and I was entrusted with, in that moment, the most precious thing in the world to hold. And I was given this little bundle. It was wrapped up, and I'm standing. I still remember it. The room was dark, and the moonlight was coming through the window. It's real romantic. The moonlight was coming through the window, and I'm standing with my newly born daughter, who's less than an hour old, in my arms, and there's nobody else there, and my heart is exploding. I did not know it was possible to love something or someone that much. Just couldn't comprehend it until that moment and just boom. And I'm standing there holding her, just looking at her. And it suddenly dawned on me for the first time ever, this is how my parents feel about me. And I felt this compulsion to phone my mom and apologize for... You know, 30 years of just being a terrible son, not appreciating just how she felt about me. I share that story because there is something in this text tonight, and there's something in the, the beginning of this freedom in Christ course. I want to suggest we, we often have good theology, or mostly have good theology, but there's a disconnect between our head and our heart. I know my parents love me, but in that moment, I got a glimpse of the feeling of just how much they love me. You guys know that God loves you. You've been singing about it. You've been coming to Orangefield for years and hearing about it. But I can almost guarantee you there is a disconnect between your head and your heart and your lived experience of being a loved child of God. And this freedom in Christ journey is talking about that. This freedom in Christ journey is, is helping us think through really good theology of what it is to be justified in Christ, forgiven, redeemed, whatever language you want to use. But living in that reality. Not just knowing it, but 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 knowing it. You know what I mean? You with me? And not allowing things like shame and guilt and unworthy and not good enough and unlovable to be part of our story. So what's this going to look like? It's not going to be, tonight's going to feel a bit like an ordinary Orangefield evening service. A bit of worship, a um, bit of teaching, some prayer, some more worship, prayer ministry. Brilliant. Future weeks, what is going to look like? We'll have worship. Of we'll teaching, maybe one or two songs to land it. And then, if you want to, we're going to break into um, breakout groups, small groups. And some will be in here and some will be out there in different places. Maybe about eight or ten people in each group. And there'll be a facilitator there and there'll be some questions to help you think through what has been talked about. And it's up to you how much or how little you want to share. And we'll try to keep you as close to the same groups as we can every week. Um, and We'll run this through for about ten weeks. A couple of exceptions around harvest and there's a night that Stephen Rosie Kennedy will be here in October, and we want to give them just space to share with us. but but for the most part that's going to be the format of our Sunday evenings for the next few months. If you have any questions, grab Gary, grab myself. We'd love to chat to you about it. Um, we really want to invite you into that. At the very start, I think it's really important to to throw a question out because if If we're looking our lives to be shaped by the Bible, how can we know we can trust the Bible? That sounds like a very, I don't know, twee thing to say, especially if many of you are Christians tonight. But just on the off chance, you've never thought about that question. I think if we're looking to build our life on something like the Bible, we should know that we can trust it. This book that was written, started to be written about 3,500 years ago, was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40-ish people that we know of. This book that, since its um, origins, has been translated into approximately 704 different languages, reaching 5.7 billion people in their own language. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Like that—that's that, that's fairly impressive. How do we know we can trust it? Any Indiana, any Indiana Jones fans? So I mean, Dave's going, Yes, I could see you with the hat and the whip. I really could. Yeah, it'd be good. <laughs> be fun. <laughs> um, Indiana Jones would go off. I used to watch as a kid. I still love it, sort of. And he goes off and he explores and he finds artifacts. And you know, Maybe not so much the people shooting at him and the, the, the Nazis thing. That was a bit scary. But the, the stuff he's doing to, to find relics from history um, and, and bring them into the modern era to help us understand more about the past. That, that, that idea of something being historically proven for a long time, people thought the Bible wasn't historically reliable. But actually, over the past couple of hundred years, with, with more and more investment in archaeology, we're finding more and more things that, that prove parts of the Bible to be true. Now, we, we, we haven't been able to prove all of it yet. But things like... Um, things like people for years didn't think that Sodom and Gomorrah were real places, you know, where where, um, God destroyed them after Lot and his wife fled from them because they weren't there anymore. People thought these are just two made-up places. But then in the 1970s, there was a couple of clay tablets found that talked about Sodom and Gomorrah that dated back to that era. Incredible, absolutely incredible. Or another one was, um, you know the story in John's Gospel where Jesus heals the guy who's disabled at the Pool of Bethsaida? But with all the archaeology around Jerusalem, nobody had ever been able to define the Pool of Bethsaida, and they thought that this is obviously a a made-up place, a fictional tale, and it's it's a miracle story, so that just throws further doubt on the matter. And then they discovered a pool with with 12 columns around it, just like described at the Pool of Bethsaida, and they find a plaque on the wall beside this pool as they were sort of uncovering it that talked about the healing properties in the water for those who would bathe in the water. And I could regale you a story after story. I'm trying to condense it a bit, but I could regale you a story after story about historical findings that prove parts of the Bible to be real. Is it historically proven? Yeah, a lot of it is. A lot of it is. And then there's the whole idea of source criticism which, which looks at how authentic and how trustworthy are the original texts. And if you've done Alpha, you'll have seen some of this stuff um, played out really well in one of the sessions. If you haven't done Alpha, it's going to run again in a few weeks' time. We'd love you to sign up for it and do it. All right, right, Brian? He'll tell you all about it, exactly where it's going to be, what time it's at, all of those things. Fantastic. Um, but in one of the Alpha sessions, it talks about source criticism of the Bible. No, nobody ever dreams to question whether Plato's Republic is an authentic book. We, we, we all assume that that was written by Plato, that, it, that it's real. And yet there's only a few copies of ancient texts of that book that still exist. You know, not the original, but hundreds and hundreds of years after the original was produced. But that's enough for us to to say, well, that's a real text. With the Bible, there are hundreds and hundreds of scrolls that we have dating back to a few years, up to a hundred years after the texts were written. There is more historical proof from original documents or close to original documents for, for the Bible than for any other piece of literature we have today. Nobody questions Plato's Republic, but people question this. I don't understand why by the same... Michael was preaching last week. One of the things he talked about is that the Bible's self-evidence. There are prophetic things in the Bible that are talked about that then later on come true in the story of Scripture. One of the things that Michael addressed was, was all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus coming, Jesus of Nazareth coming about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. And as we read through the gospel stories, we see those prophecies all coming true. We've just finished a preaching series in Jeremiah. One of the things we talked about at the end of it was um, the, the, the prophecy that Jeremiah made that to the people in exile to say in 70 years, God's gonna rescue you and liberate you. And in approximately 70 years from he sent that letter, not exactly, but approximately 70 years, God's people returned from exile back to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the walls and the temple. The Bible proves itself to be true. The other question about it is the impact of the Bible. Well, let's even just start from when Jesus died. Told there were about 120 believers scared, confused, meeting together in a little room in Jerusalem. You fast forward 2,000 years, there are 2.2 billion Christians on this planet alive today. Incredible impact. Incredible impact, and Christianity is still growing. It doesn't feel like it's growing if you live in the UK, perhaps, but if you live in China, if you live in the southern hemisphere, Christianity is exploding at the minute. If you live in Iran, Christianity is exploding at the minute. I read somewhere recently, if you become a Christian in Iran, there's a fairly good likelihood that in three years you'll be leading the church. Wow. And this book, I think is historically viable. This book, this collection of books, from start to finish, it tells the story of a God who, who creates you, and he loves you, and he knows what it is for you to have abundant life. And the mistake that humanity make right at the start is the same mistake that's made today right across Belfast, right across Northern Ireland, is that people refuse to trust the God of the Bible and his words and try to make their own choices and wonder why life crumbles. Whereas the story of Scripture is the story of a God who makes us and who loves us and his desire is for us to have The fullest life, abundant life. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life abundantly. Don't confuse that with all of your dreams coming true. Not prosperity gospel. But in God we see the key to a deep and satisfied life. And so this journey we're going to go on tonight. Well, we we probably do this every week when we come to Orangefield, but this journey we're going to go on tonight and over the next number of weeks it is going to explore some of the truths in this word in Scripture that we build our life upon and then shape our lives around. So tonight we want to talk about identity, just for a few minutes. And historically, your identity was your name. When you meet somebody new, that's the first thing you ask. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Yeah? You know that thing when you go on holiday, go on holiday this summer? And and that thing when you bump into somebody from Northern Ireland. Oh, do you know do you are from Ballymena. Do, do you do you know do you know Joe? Do you know Joe? He lives there I don't know Joe, but I know I know that guy that lives beside Joe. I used to work with him. You know what I mean? Yeah? You with me? Historically that's how we framed identity. It was Who are you and what do you do and where are you from? And then in the past few years, it's changed slightly because identity is formed by feelings and desires. But the Bible says something quite different. And to understand our identity, we have to go right back to the beginning of the story in Genesis because we are created It's a fundamental truth of Scripture that we are created, and we are created from the things of this earth and the things of heaven. We are created from the dust of the earth and the breath of God. We are created from the things of this earth, and we are created from the things of heaven. That God forms Adam from the dust, and then he breathes life into him. And that breath of God is is the Hebrew ruach, which is the spirit that brings life. And as God breathes his spirit into us, it connects us to our body and the things of the earth. As he breathes his spirit into us, it it connects us to to the divine, to God. Because we are created um, for connection and we are created for significance and we are created for security. We are created for, for connection with the living God, for friendship with the living God. We see it with Adam and Eve, walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. We see it throughout the Bible that, that God's people are a people who, who know God and who hear God's voice and who speak with God. We are created for connection with the living God. And we are created for, for significance, for purpose, for purpose. And it's not a purpose that we, we discover by ourselves. You go off you know, into really around Europe to find yourself and discover your purpose after university before you start a job. I'm, I'm all for that, but that's not how you find your purpose. That's just a fun thing to do. You find your purpose in God. The God who creates you for connection creates you with a, with a purpose. And your purpose is to rule with God, and your purpose is to worship. We are created. Adam and Eve were, were put in the garden for connection with God, for friendship with God. And they were created to rule with God. That sounds very grand, but they, they were created that the purposes of God would flow through them into the world. They were created to create, and they were created to care for, and they were created to steward, and they were created to, to multiply. They were created to rule as God would rule through them. Not having to strive, not having to prove themselves, just simply in connection with God, they found their purpose. And in connection with God and the purpose of God, they were totally secure. They trusted God to provide for their needs, to fill their hearts with love and to provide what they needed. They had zero worry. They had zero insecurity. They had zero fear. What must that have been like? But if you've been around church for a while, you know the story. You know that that sin came into the world. They refused to trust God, and then there was a disconnect because they started trusting themselves instead of God. And sin led to death. They, they were still physically alive, at least for a while, but spiritually they became dead. Something within them was lost. Something within them changed. They lost their connection with God. They had this crushing sense of rejection that, started to impact every other relationship. The story that two sons and one son got jealous of the other and murdered. Because they lost that connection with God. And they lost the the love of God. And so they stopped being completely fulfilled by that and started looking in other places for that. They started looking in other places for significance because they were no longer getting it from their connection with God. Looking for their purpose in all the wrong things. And, and, and the wrong thing started to bring guilt, started to bring shame, started to bring that sense of feeling unworthy, having to strive. And because they lost the connection, they lost their significance, they... They lost their security. Worry and fear and insecurity became part of their reality. I read something today just to to lighten the mood slightly because I get this is a bit heavy. If you start your day without caffeine, that's me out, but if you start your day without caffeine, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful, If you can deal with tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you must be the family dog. Certainly in my house, my dog lies up off an evening when we're both working on laptops. He's lying up on his back, four legs in the air on the sofa, tongue. He's a black cocker spaniel with a pink tongue. That's all you see. Not a worry in the world, totally secure. What must that be like? What must that be like? To not worry what other people think of you. What must that be like? Not to feel insecurity when you walk into a room. What must it be like to be free from Fear. See, we've lost our identity. We've lost our security. We've lost our purpose. But God in his kindness doesn't leave us that way. He, he sends his son. I, I, I get I'm repeating some stuff you guys already know. I, I do get that. But this is foundational for building everything else off. God in his kindness sends his son, Jesus, who is, is God's rescue plan and at the same time God's restoration plan tied up in, in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' life, he, he lives in this perfect connection with God. He slips away from the crowd and he prays and he, and he listens to God. He enjoys being alone with God more than anything. When he's with other people, it's as if he still knows the things that his father wants him to do and, and he's able to do them. as if he's just this constant communication with the father. His life Shows us what it is to be totally secure. He doesn't try to impress anybody. He doesn't worry what anybody else thinks. Because he is totally loved by the Father, he's completely secure. Not trying to find that security in any other relationship. And he knows his purpose, he knows exactly what he's supposed to do. Not trying to impress anybody, not trying to win them over. He knows exactly what he's meant to do. Jesus' life shows us what it looks like to live spiritually alive in a fallen world. Yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully human. His life shows us what it looks like to live fully alive in a fallen world. But it's his death and resurrection that make that possible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, there's a song written about it. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. God made Jesus sin. And then he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's not simply that he forgave us. He took the deadness that's inside of us that came from the separation from God. He took that deadness and replaced it with his life. So we get to be loved by God the way Jesus is loved by the Father. We get to have that restored purpose and security in the same way Jesus has. He swaps on the cross. The death that we owe, the fear that we feel, all of those things, the loss of purpose, the striving, he takes all of those things into himself and offers us his perfect love relationship with the Father. It's an imparted righteousness. He takes what's his and he puts it into us. When we trust him, when we give our lives to him, this is what happens. We are justified by his work on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we become a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What has gone? What is it that has gone? When we accept Jesus Work on the cross. When we come to him and ask for that transformation in our own lives, what what is gone? It's not just that he makes something that is bad within us good. He, He takes the thing that is dead within us, he takes it out and replaces his life into us. He gives us his righteousness. The old has gone, the new has come. The sinful core within us has gone. We are no longer children of darkness. We are children of light when we trust in Jesus. And again, I'm looking at you, and I know you know this, but I don't think you know this. And let me explain why. Before we become Christians, we are sinners who need to be saved by grace. We can do nothing to save ourselves. And it is by grace that we can be saved. It is by grace that we can be forgiven. It is by grace that we can become children of the living God. Nothing we do ourselves. It is only what Jesus has done on the cross that can do that for us. So before we become Christians, we are sinners who need to be saved by grace. It speaks of our core. We are sinful at the core. We need to be rescued, redeemed, saved by grace. In the moment we become a Christian, we are a sinner being saved by grace. It speaks of the reality of what's happening in that moment. But after that moment, if you have been a Christian for 10 seconds, if you've been a Christian for 60 years, something within you has fundamentally changed. If being a sinner speaks of our core identity, then it is factually incorrect to call us sinners. And I want to suggest that if you're a Christian here tonight, you're not a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint who sometimes sins. And that's the part that we struggle to get our heads around. That's the part we struggle to get our heads around. If you're a Christian here tonight, it is not accurate to say you are a sinner. Now, don't misunderstand me. You still sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. But saying I sin is different than saying I'm a sinner. Saying I'm a sinner speaks of the core identity of my reality. Saying I sin speaks of the actions that I do, sometimes. And if you are a Christian, your core identity has changed. You are not darkness there, you are light. You are not an orphan there, you are a child of the living God. You are not a sinner at your core, you are now someone who is chosen, loved, forgiven, and redeemed. If you died tonight and went to heaven, you would stand before God perfectly forgiven. Because you have trusted in Jesus. Now if you haven't trusted in Jesus, it's a whole different story. But if you have trusted in Jesus, then you become a holy one of God. And the word holy one is the same as the word saint. You are a saint who still sins and needs help. Let me tell you a story. Some of you have heard of a guy, Mike Pilavachi, Maybe? Maybe, maybe not, maybe not. He runs a massive youth organization over in England. The guy he works with, Andy Croft. Um, they, they, they run this thing together. And Andy and his wife adopted, fostered and then adopted this wee lad um, who just had had the most horrible few years. Just a, had been kicked about, had been hurt, had been rejected, had been passed about foster homes. It had been a really, really sad story. They, they, they adopted him. And the kid was quiet and slightly withdrawn. Did, not badly behaved, didn't cause any problems. Just, um, you know, do you want some more dinner? Yes, please. Go and head to your room. Okay. And uh, if you have kids, you'll know that's not always the reality. Yeah, you with me? The, the, this kid just was, was quite quiet and quite sullen and quite withdrawn. And they were going, like, What do we do here? 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 And they just kept reinforcing, you're loved, you're part of this family, you're loved, you're part of this family. And then Andy tells this story that about three years into the journey of adoption with this kid, they're in McDonald's one day, and the kid says, you know, can I get a, a, a large chip, a large fries? And Andy's thinking, no, you're like, you're like, what, six or seven years old. Like getting a large fries is going to lead to an obesity crisis in you. No, you can have, you can have a happy meal, a small fries." I really want a large fries. He's like, no, you're not getting large fries. You're not getting large fries. You get small fries, fine, you're, you're only tiny, small fries. And he gets the food, sets it down in front of him, and the kid lifts the fries and just goes, and fires them all over the restaurant. And inside, Andy was thinking, yes. Why is he thinking yes? Is the kid being a wee toe rag? Yeah, 100%. Does he need told off? 100%. Why is Andy thinking yes? Because for the first time ever, that kid feels loved and secure enough to be part of a family where he can just be himself and know that it's not going to end in rejection. To know that just because he misbehaves, he's not going to get kicked out. Because he knows that he is loved and he knows that he is part of a family and something in his core has shifted and changed that in that moment, even in misbehaving. It doesn't change who he is. He is part of the family. Does that make sense? You with me? You with me? So we come to the prodigal son. You see this rebellious son. He goes off, squanders his dad's, you guys know the story, squanders all his dad's wealth. And he ends up in abject poverty as the famine hits and As a Jewish guy having to look after the pigs, it's awful. He's sitting going, even the servants in my dad's house are better than me. I'm going to go back and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son, but maybe I could be a servant. And he comes back to his dad and he says, his dad sees him and runs towards him. There's a whole piece about that, how his dad was undignified in pursuing him and running towards him. Because he loved him that much. And the son says, dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But maybe I could be a servant. And the dad just totally ignores him. Doesn't engage the conversation at all. He looks at his servant. He says, bring a robe and put it on him. Bring a ring, put it on his finger. Bring, bring sandals, put them on his feet. Because the son arrived wearing rags. And he felt like, like a slave. And he felt he could only be a servant. But his dad looked at him and and loved him. And even though he was covered in rags, his dad knew he was his son. Because even in rebellion and even when he was wearing rags, was he still the father's son? Yeah, he was. He was still the father's son. That core identity hadn't changed. Even though the kid had messed up, even though he, he came back wearing rags, he was a son wearing rags. But he didn't feel like it, did he? He he, he felt not even good enough to be a servant. He didn't feel like a son, even though the reality was he was still the son. He, He was allowing his outer exterior, his robes to define his inner core, his reality. I think some of you do that as well. You still mess up. You still sin. I get that. We still make mistakes. I get that. But it causes you to think, I'm not loved by God. It causes you to think, well, God maybe loves me because he loves everybody and he's really tolerant, but he doesn't actually like me very much. And you forget that at your core, Something has shifted. If you are a Christian, at your heart, you are a chosen and loved and forgiven son and daughter of the king. You are a saint in God's eyes. And yes, you still mess up, and yes, you still are in need of grace, but your core identity is that you are one of God's children and nothing can change that. And yet we still allow our outward rags in our own minds to define our heart posture before God, don't we? It's interesting, I'm not going to get into it massively tonight, but, but the older son, who's dressed in the finest clothes and doing all the things right, he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I've been knocking my panning for you. I've been slaving away for you, and you don't even give me a goat, a calf, anything to have with my friends. He was wearing all the right clothes, and yet he still didn't feel like a son either. Something in his heart was disconnected from his father, and his father said, but you're my son too. You're my son. Just because you didn't leave, just because your clothes look nice, just because you don't mess up as much as as they mess up, you're my son too. This freedom in Christ journey, some of you are probably uncomfortable with that. I'm okay with that. I'm totally convinced. Paul, when he writes to the church, to people who are Christians, even when they're messing up, he doesn't write to them and say to the sinners in Ephesus or to the sinners in Corinth or to the sinners in... What does he say? To the, to the saints, to the ones who are holy and chosen and loved by God because you're at your core, if you are a Christian, your identity has changed. You're a saint. He still has problems with sin. He still makes mistakes. He still needs grace. But if you're a Christian, your heart, your core has changed. This freedom in Christ journey, it's it's about living, (coughs) excuse me, living out that truth. Living out that reality. It's about knowing that you are loved and recognizing the things in your life that are, that are mistakes, that are sinful. And yet yeah, dealing with those, but dealing with them from the position of somebody who is loved and, and chosen and forgiven by God. And this is gonna be a safe place to go on that journey over these next number of weeks. And I really wanna encourage you to do that. I wanna encourage you to invite, invite friends along too as well. Freedom in Christ is a journey to know and to feel and to live out your true identity. Rediscovering your connection with God, rediscovering the purpose that he has created you for, and rediscovering what it is to be secure in your identity with him. As we land tonight, there's a number of biblical statements that are going to come up on the screen. I simply want us to invite us to read them together. Can you put them up now? Is that okay? These are all, I can give you the text references for all of these. I just didn't put them up because it would have been too much text on the screen. I am a child of God. It puts I into it to personalize it because it's important to personalize it flows from john 1 12 as a disciple i am a friend of jesus christ flows from john 15 15 i have been justified flows from romans 5 1 i can send you the text references if you want but but these are all biblical statements that have been personalized into the first person and as we land tonight's sermon i simply want us to read these together so they're on the screen let's read them together I am God's child. As a disciple, I am a friend of Jesus Christ. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord, and I am one with him in spirit. I have been bought with a price, and I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I have been chosen by God and adopted as his child. I have been redeemed and forgiven for all of my sins. I am complete in Christ. I have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that God works for my good in all circumstances. I am free from any condemnation brought against me and I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that God will complete the good work he has started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine, and a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am God's temple. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that there is a disconnect between these truths that you speak over us in your word and about us in your word. There is a disconnect between these truths and our lived experience. And yet as we declare these truths over ourselves tonight from your word, we ask Holy Spirit, come and bring them from our minds to our hearts. Form our feelings and our lived experience, not by how we feel in any given circumstance, but but by your word, Lord. And for those of us who are Christians, may we go from this place and not doubt that we are loved by you. And may your love shape not just us, but every relationship that we have. And for anyone here who is not yet a Christian, and feels they want this, feels God is, is stretching out a hand and saying, I want you as my child. If you want to take that step tonight, pray with me now. Father, I am sorry for the mess in my life, for the sin in my life. I'm sorry for the choices that I've made that have brought me further away from you and from your purposes and your plans. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe he he rose again from the dead so that death has no hold over me. I turn to you now, God. Put your spirit in me and make me your child. Allow these truths that we speak and see in your word to become my reality.